2 Timothy chapter 2 will be in verses 14 through 26 this morning, second half of 2 Timothy 2. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are setting, upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. A Pew research study, and you know, every time I hear that, I kind of think of whose pews are they talking about, but it's, it's just the name of this organization that does a lot of work in, in data and, and surveys and that sort of thing. But one conducted last year showed us that 56% of Americans believe in the God of the Bible, 56% of all Americans believe in God as described in the Bible. 34% of Americans believe in some form of higher power, something out there that's greater than us. Now, those, those numbers might surprise us a little bit, um, but one of the last numbers we see is that 10% of all Americans reject any sort of uh, deity any sort of higher power, reject God and anything to do with the, the spiritual realm. That's a little bit eye-opening, and I just want that to sink into you. 56% of Americans believe in God as he's portrayed in the Bible. So that should probably cause us to ask a question when somebody says something like, we are a nation who is one nation under God, in God we trust. We should be wondering what God are they talking about. Uh, I think sometimes we assume it's the same God that we worship. Here's the most surprising statistic of all. Now this is done in an independent study related to this one. 
Only 46% of evangelical Christians, now I'm talking about people that go to evangelical churches, 46% of evangelical Christians believe that there's only one path to salvation. The rest are convinced that there are a lot of different ways to eternal life, and pretty much their opinion is that if you're sincere about your faith and you're committed to it, you kind of throw in that mix, being a good person too, then you'll go to heaven. As we continue to hear the rumble and the flashes and the noise that are just beyond the horizon, you get the sense if, if you're watching all this happen and, and absorbing what's going on around us, you get the sense that there's something, there's something coming our way. We've been talking about it for the last couple weeks, and, and, and i got to tell you something. The question that's before us, and the question we're trying to answer is, how, how will the church respond to this? How will the church respond? Now, I, I want to I just pause right here and show you the track that we've been on for the last year because we've been very deliberate about the books that we're preaching through and the, the message that we're trying to convey. In May of 2017, we started looking at the book of Jonah. Jonah was the angry prophet. And if you remember Jonah's story, called upon by God, enabled by God, God uses him to preach to people. Lives are changed. People repent. Jonah's unhappy. Jonah's angry no matter what God does. He's a petulant young child uh, sitting under a, a bush or looking over Nineveh, mad, says to God, I knew you would do this. I knew you'd save these people. So Jonah is angry no matter what. And he misses he misses the blessing of God. So it doesn't, doesn't negate the fact Jonah was used. Jonah, uh, God poured through him. God transformed people through him. Uh, used mightily of God, but he's unhappy. So we moved from there in June to 2 Corinthians. And Paul, who was content in all circumstances. Paul's just a happy guy. Now, I... Paul didn't put a happy face on everything that happened. He's not just sitting there going, you know what, I'm just going to smile no matter what. Paul has had a hard life. As a matter of fact, in most ways, it was a lot harder than, than Jonah's. But Paul has decided that regardless of what happens to him on the outside, he's going to be content with what God has put on his plate. He's going to be pleased with it. He's going to be a witness to it. So we go from Jonah, the angry prophet, to Paul, who's content in everything. And then we come into Timothy, 2 Timothy, and guard the gospel. Now, we were 20 sermons in 2 Corinthians, and we'll probably be another two more here in uh, 2 Timothy, maybe three. So why did we pick 2 Timothy after these two? Because we're in that time when there are clouds on the horizon. The ground is shaking. How will the church respond? And more importantly, how will you respond? Will you be Jonah? Angry at the situation around us? Displeased with what God's doing? Will you miss God's blessing? Because you thought things would go a certain way and they're going a different way? Or, or will you be content? We receive what God has for you. 
Will we receive as a church what God has for us, regardless of what happens around us? If they start enacting laws that we don't like, if, if, if people begin labeling us that, like that's not already happening, amen? Okay, will we be content? Will we respond the way we're supposed to respond? Paul was content in all circumstances, and he did it for the sake of the gospel. Now, 2 Timothy begins laying out how we will respond like Paul. Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy asks this question, will you live your theology? You know, will, we, will we look at the Bible? Will we come here every Sunday morning and, and dive deep into Scripture? Will we be equipped with everything that Scripture says about how to live out there? Uh, and then will we go out and actually live it? Will it become part of who we are? Will it go from head knowledge and academic processing of all of this information we have to an expression of love and mercy and grace out there in our community? Will we live our the- theology? Will it be in our head or in our heart? Well, now, now, why is that important? Be- be- because we're in this struggle. Because the landscape is, is changing. The ground is shifting beneath our feet. And let me tell you something. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Because that could be scary if, if, if we don't look at it in the right context. This is not a war of attrition. This is not a battle of attrition that we're talking about. This is a war of opportunity. We know anything about God and the way he works through his people. Whenever they come under hardship, it's an opportunity for them to put God on display. It's an opportunity for them to show how much they trust in the Father. It's an opportunity for them to speak his word and then show the world that they can live it as well. This is a war of opportunity. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the question was, how are we going to fight this war? How are we going to engage here? Timothy gets his rules of engagement. And the answer is that he's going to fight it with the word of God. He's going to fight it with the gospel. He's going to fight this war with with unconventional means, with love and compassion and mercy and grace. He's going to fight the war with heavenly weapons, not with earthly weapons. And there's there's a very strong contrast between the two brothers and sisters. So here we are in the second part of chapter 2. We find out that we're going to fight this war with heavenly weapons. What are our weapons? What are they? And how are we going to use them? It it should be enough for us to just say it's a gospel. But Paul never leaves his readers hanging. He he goes into detail about how to do the things that he calls them to do. So in the second half of chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy and us how to use these heavenly weapons. And what we're going to see in our passage today is the, uh, uh, what we're charged with, and that's in verses 14 through 19. In other words, uh, see what to do, uh, exactly how to utilize this truth that we've been given, exactly how to u- utilize the Word of God. Uh, we're going to see what we must cleanse from our lives in verses 20 and 21. And uh, let me give you the quick answer here. It's anything dishonorable, anything that does not honor God. Uh, And then we're going to see what we should be chasing, what we must chase in verses 22 through 26. And quick answer on that one is we we must chase righteousness, faith, love, peace, and, and the church. We pursue 
the church. At a time when people are saying, you know, what, we don't need this organization, we don't need these obligations, we don't, we don't need this, we're going to see that we should pursue the church. So today's sermon is called As One Approved. This is part four uh, of our Guard the Gospel series in 2 Timothy. What are our weapons and how do we use them? So let's start with what we're charged with in 14 through 19. Uh, 14 says, remind them of these things. Now the things that 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 Paul wants Timothy to remind them of, these are the people that he's, he's leading, is everything that he's talked about prior, prior to this point. And when he says to charge them, remind them of all these things that I'm teaching you and charge them. And it means to exhort. And yeah, so what does this exhortation mean? You know, it's a, a, a word that pops up frequently when we get together on Sunday mornings. But wh- what does it mean? It means to... to uh, encourage. It means to be sincere in our encouragement. It means to motivate people. It means to, to try and draw people in and encourage them to work uh, within the framework that they've given. So Paul is charging Timothy. He's exhorting Timothy. Now he's already done this. So Timothy knows what he's charged with. Uh, we saw that in 1 Timothy verses, uh, chapters 5 and 6. And what he's charged Timothy with is to keep the rules, to abide by the commandments that uh, are there in the Word. And he wants Timothy to do the same thing, to charge those people he's leading with the same things as he's been charged with. So, and so what is that? Charge them to do what? Listen to this. The first thing, the first charge that comes out of Paul's mouth, the first thing that Timothy is to convey to the people that he's leading is not to quarrel about words. Not to quarrel about words. Wow. There's something in there for us, isn't there? I mean, here we are in this atmosphere of hypersensitivity. Uh, I don't like what you said. I saw a sign that offended me. Uh, that guy over there said a nasty thing, and, and I'm going to sue you. We're going to boycott you. And it says, don't quarrel about words. Don't get involved in that. Don't get drawn into it. This is not what the church is here to do. Don't quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now, now he's talking about arguments. How many people in here have ever been in an argument? Most of you are being honest, thank you. Let me ask you this. How many times have you argued with somebody and changed their mind? Can you count them on the fingers of one hand? I mean, I, I do it all the time. I'm absolutely convinced that if I get angry with someone, they'll look at me and go, you are so wise. I have just changed my entire life based on your anger. It made me see the reality of what I'm living in, and I'm going to make those changes right now. It never works. It never works. What does our anger produce in somebody? anger. And, you know, I'm silly enough that I think when they get angry, if I just get angrier, then that'll settle it. 
And, you know, what, and I, I never stopped to think, well, they're thinking the same thing. Where does this end? Uh, uh, this is how wars start, isn't it? I'm going to throw a stone at you. Oh, I'll throw two, two, stone, two stones at you. That'll end it. Oh, no, I've got three. Next thing is it's rockets and bombs and so on and so forth. And it escalates. It escalates. Okay, Paul says, don't do that. It only ruins it does no good, but only ruins the hearers, the people that are listening to this, the people that we're arguing with. It does damage to. We're not here to do damage. We're supposed to be a place of healing. We're supposed to be a place of peace, of compassion, of mercy. Don't quarrel about words. And do your, in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, this is not Paul calling Timothy to perfection. He's not saying, get everything right. But it's a call for Timothy to be passionate, to be eager, to be earnest, to be diligent in doing, in doing what? In being a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, there's a subject of that. Rightly handling the word of truth. So he wants Timothy not just teaching. He wants him to do that. But handling the word. Analyzing it correctly. Presenting it in, in, in its truth. Presenting it with clarity. Rightly handling means to, to cut straight. To skillfully discern the word. Now, Timothy's called to preach it. And he's called to raise up teachers. And, and I know what you're all thinking. I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a preacher. Okay? But check this out. Timothy's leading the church, right? The church is in unity, right? It's supposed to be a body. It's supposed to be this reflection of grace and mercy and Christ and the bride and, and all those things. Okay? If he's calling Timothy to preach and teach, he's calling the church to listen. Timothy's not to speak in just to the open, empty air. He's speaking into the hearts, the souls of those people who are placed in front of them. They're called to appropriate it. They're called to live this. They're called to allow the word to change them. Allow the Holy Spirit to move in their heart and bring them together as a church. But avoid, oh, what is this in verse 16? Avoid irreverent babble. Wasn't he just talking about this? Why is he saying it again? Now, in the NIV, this is avoid godless chatter. And if you go all the way back to the King James and, and what they're talking about there is avoid non-pious chatter. And if what, what Paul is saying is the exchanges you have with, with people inside and outside the church should be respectful. They should be, they should be in consideration of those around us, not, not tainted by anger, not tainted by self-righteousness, not tainted by bitterness or judgment. Brothers and sisters, we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be a beacon of truth. And our, our calling is to convey that light, to shed that light on people that are outside, people that are not just like us when we gather here together, but people that are not like us. People that we like and people that we don't like. It's a tough calling. It's real easy for us to come together on Sunday morning if we all look like each other and sound like each other, isn't it? Just some great little society. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're not the only people in the world. 
And we're called to share the truth with them. We're called to shed the light on them. And do it with respect. Do it with compassion and mercy. Avoid irreverent babble. These things, the arguing, the self-justifying, posturing that we see, the squabbles, they're, they're not godly. According to Paul, they lead people into more and more ungodliness. You see what happened there? I mean, first he says, you know, arguing will ruin people. Now it says it leads them to more and more ungodliness. There's a downward progression here. More and more. Yeah, this sort of tension that we see in this hypercritical, hypersensitive culture starts us circling the drain. And the more we add to it, and, and you know what this looks like. If you've, if you've got a, a sink at home, how many people have a sink? I'm just seeing if you're being honest with me. You put a little bit of water in a sink, it goes down the drain. You put more water, what happens? Circling's faster, doesn't it? Sooner or later, everything in the sink goes down the drain if you add enough water. That, that's the image of Paul's conveying here. And he says, this stuff spreads like gangrene. So we got, we're circling the drain. Meanwhile, everything's infected. Uh, gangrene, uh, you, you know, once it hits one of your limbs, you could have the limb amputated. If you don't, it could consume the whole body. And gangrene is nothing more than rot. This kind of stuff rots us from the inside. And he has two examples here, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, and, and the thing we need to understand about them, because I read these names and I look at them and go, oh, those are bad guys. You know who they are? They're members of the church. He's not saying they're not saved. He's just saying they're causing a lot of trouble. They're doing these things that we're not supposed to do. And because they're doing it, they are upsetting the people around them. See, when, when we engage in this stuff, whether we're arguing with each other, whether we're arguing with the people outside, whether we are contemptuous of other people, it begins to affect the people around us. It has a negative effect on them. Paul doesn't want Timothy to give up hope, though. He has an encouragement. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. The foundation of the church is solid. We just have to know what the foundation is. The foundation of the church is not going away. It's fine. And it bears this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, I love that because these two troublemakers, the easy thing to do would be to judge them, right? They must not be saved. Paul's saying, don't worry about them. The Lord knows whether or not they're saved. Your concern should be, look at the second half of the verse here, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Your concern should be your walk, not theirs. The Lord will take care of them. Now, there are other guidelines when things start getting out of hand, but for now, Paul says, look at yourself. Don't worry about whether or not the church is going to make it. Don't worry about whether or not these people are going to do permanent damage to the gospel. They're not. But they can do permanent damage to you. So maintain your status before the Lord. Maintain your posture before the Lord. He says, do everything you can to avoid unrighteousness. You, 
Depart from iniquity. Don't go down the path they've gone down. Don't let them draw you into it. Don't let them draw you into other sins that will denigrate the gospel, besmirch God's name. So there we are. We're, we're, we're charged with not quarreling about words, not quarreling about words among ourselves and with people outside the church, maybe even particularly with people outside the church. We're charged with doing our best, with teaching the word and rightly applying the word to our lives. We're charged with avoiding irreverent babble. It just hurts everybody and sets us on this downward slope. In other words, we use the word of God to teach, to edify, to strengthen, to nourish, to encourage, never to judge, never to oppose, never to tear down. Always allowing God to determine who is his and who isn't. Our job is to spread the gospel. Our job is to leave the, live the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to do the rest of the work. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit for God, and the Holy Spirit doesn't need our help. So, so we use, watch this, we use God's word. I think we get that, amen? We use God's word for his, to honor him for the edification of the church, but what Paul's trying to say is we use our own words as well. We use God's word, and we use our own words as encouragement, as vessels of grace and mercy. We use them as weapons, but we use them in a godly fashion. We use them as weapons that advance the kingdom, that honor God in how we use them, leaving judge and condemnation, judgment and condemnation in God's hands while we monitor our own walks. That's what we're charged with. Here are the things we need to cleanse ourselves of. Verse 20 and 21. I'm going to look at these two verses again. Verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, what are we talking about here? Yeah, uh, these two verses have been interpreted in a number of different ways. Uh, most commentators, if you go home and pick up a commentator uh, this afternoon, you'll probably see that they link this to Romans 9.21 or 1 Corinthians 3.12, both of which are about the potter and the type of pots that he makes and whether or not they're for uh, honoring or for destruction and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, it's a valid way of looking at it. Uh, the language is very similar in the two. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I, I, I don't think it really fits in with the context of what's happening here. He just said, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So to get what, what I see in here, I'm going to ask you to, to think about a house. Think about a real house. Think about our homes. We have vessels at home that are used sparingly. We might call them vessels of honor. We have vessels that we use every day. So we've got vessels that are the equivalent of gold and silver and vessels that are the equivalent of wood and clay, but all the vessels are necessary. All the vessels are necessary. We need a selection of vessels to get through our day and get through our week. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say. He said, look, you know, 
Everybody in the body is necessary. And it's not about the ones up front or the ones that are high profile. It's about everybody together. And if any of them cleanse themselves, and the word here is, is to put away. Put away what? If they cleanse themselves of dishonorable things. Now, this is not, this is not self-sanctification. This is an awareness of what needs to be purged from your life. And a conscious effort to work against it. So we participate in our sanctification. Amen? Okay? So as we follow the Holy Spirit, as He leads us to purge these things from our lives, as we sincerely try to do that, uh, and He's making a sincere, a clear reference to Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus here, uh, and He's setting up what's going to come in the next paragraph, but right here in this paragraph, He says, know that putting away dishonorable things will have three effects on your life. They're right here in, in verse 21. Number one, that they will set us apart as holy. We will become unique. We will become distinguished among people. Uh, people will see the Lord Jesus Christ in us. Uh, they will see us going through the process of sanctification. Number one, they will set us apart as being holy. Number two, they will set us apart as being useful to our Father. Now, now God's not sitting in heaven going, gee, I need somebody to help me out here. Okay, but we have to understand what useful to the Father means in the context of what Paul's saying here. Number one, we will be a witness to his presence. People will see our transformation. They'll see the change that we're going through. There be, will be a testimony to his transforming power. And it will demonstrate the unity of the church as we all move in love, as we all move in mercy, as we all move in holiness. People will see that we are one body working with each other. There are no arguments. There are no squabbles. We will show love. We will show compassion. We will be vessels of grace and mercy. We will put the gospel on display. And number three, it will make us ready for every good work. So as we work with our sanctification, three things happen. We're set apart as being holy. People will see our sanctification. Uh, we will become useful to the Father, and we will be prepared for every good work. You see, you see how cleansing can be a weapon in this battle that sits before us if we use it correctly? If we look at what we have to chase, verse 22 through 26. Now, these verses start with flee, and that's an odd way to describe what we have to chase, but I was trying to do alliteration, so. Uh, but I think it fits, okay? So, and th this fleeing refers back to 1 Timothy again, the first letter that Paul wrote to his protege, where Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He wants them to send an example, listen, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He's telling Timothy to set an example for those, set the pace, show them what this looks like, and let this go well beyond your youth. Don't, don't, don't be worried about how old you are, Depend, worry about what's coming out of you, what you're portraying. He wants Timothy to pursue he wants Timothy to chase, if you would. You look at those words there, he's looking at spiritual maturity. Pursue maturity. Back in verse 22 in our passage here, he said, don't pursue maturity. Don't be led by your feelings. 
Don't be overwhelmed by your passions, by the desires that you have as a young man. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Be overwhelmed by holiness. Be overwhelmed by godliness. Furthermore, he wants Timothy to actually pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And he wants him to do that working alongside the church. Timothy's not called to do it on his own. He's not called to do it for the people he's leading. He's called to do it with the people he's leading. So they're called to do it too. They are those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart, a sincere heart. And then, then Paul repeats himself again. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. All they do is breed more quarrels. Now, again, isn't that what we find out in practical application? Our arguments just produce more arguments. Our anger produces more anger. Paul, come back to it a third time. You would think by now, Timothy would be going, you know what, Paul, I think I get the argument thing. Okay, you don't want me to argue. I'm getting mad. I'm about to argue with Paul. So Paul doesn't let up. Look, he emphasized again, verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be what? Quarrelsome, but kind to who? Everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, you know something, I have no difficulty being kind to people I like. And I, secretly, I hope that if I'm kind to the people I like, that they'll be kind to me. So it's really kind of self-centered. I have a lot of difficulty being kind to people that aren't like me. I have difficulty being kind to people that I don't like. And I live, I live in the same environment you do. I live in the middle of uh, media messages that tell me who to like and who not to like. I gravitate towards those ones that, that portray the messages that I like. And they kind of reinforce my dislike of the people on the other side of the issue, on the other side of the aisle, the people that are not like me. Paul says, be kind to everyone. Not just the people that are like you, not just the people that you like, but to everyone. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. He doesn't say, be kind to everyone as long as they're part of Western society. <laughs> as long as they're part of the Protestant church. As long as they're part of your church. Be kind to everyone. Be kind to immigrants. Be kind to the LBGT people. Be kind to the terrorists. Oh, no, 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 John. He wouldn't call us to do that. They're not included in everyone. He says, be kind to everyone, no matter how lost they were, because at some point God has been kind to you. He says, open the doors, bring the lost people in, welcome them, 
Treat them with grace. Treat them with mercy because they're lost just like you were lost. And the work that my son did on the cross was enough to redeem you. It's enough to redeem them too. And your job as his bride is to be a reflection of grace and mercy and leave it up to the Father to do the condemning. You see the challenge that Paul's leveraging upon Timothy and the church here? Go, contrary to your nature. Go, counterintuitive. Do everything that you feel is wrong in, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth of God. And don't argue. <laughs> Be able to teach. Now, when he's talking about teaching here, he's not talking about everybody getting up and doing a doctrinal presentation. He's talking about teach in, in whichever way you're gifted. Some of you are going to be examples. Some of you are going to teach by serving. Some of you are going to teach by standing up in front of the people on Sunday morning and preaching. But everybody's got something to teach. Everybody's got something to share. Patiently enduring evil. I mean, again, we're we're living in an environment that says we shouldn't have to put up with any evil. Anything you think is evil, is objectionable, needs to be removed. There should be a law. They should be arrested. Somebody should be taken to court because they said something that offended you. So the church isn't like that. Patiently endure evil. Correcting his opponents with harshness and sharpness and anger. What's it say? Correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Carry that into the political arena. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. All this requires conscious effort. All this requires hard work. Paul knows this. We have to, brothers and sisters, we have to chase it. We have to pursue it. And if we will chase this with earnestness, if we will set aside those things that seem right to us, I mean, wasn't that the problem Israel had in the time of Judges? Everybody was doing what was right, what seemed right to them. Doesn't that sound like our time? Everybody doing what seems right to them and all this opposition right here. If we can put all that aside and portray the gospel, God may perhaps grant them. Grant who? These people that that he's saying don't quarrel with them. Grant everyone repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now notice this, God may perhaps, it's still up to God, it's not up to us. Our job is to treat them with love and respect. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen to me very carefully. Our war is not a war of issues. Our war is not a war of who is right and who's wrong. The war you and I have been called to fight, the war the church has been called to engage in is a war for people's souls. It's a war for souls war for the glory of God and the redemption of his people. So 
So we've seen what we've been charged with. Using God's word and our own words to advance the kingdom of God. We saw what what we have to cleanse from our lives. Dishonorable things. Things that don't honor God. And and you know what? Even even as, and I've been working through this for a week. I've been immersed in this. and, and And that was one of the first lines I wrote in this sermon. And I'll tell you why it hit me so hard. And you tell me if I'm not right. I know. I know what things in my life do not honor God. And I'll bet you're thinking the same thing. I think when I say cleanse dishonorable things from you, something pops up in your mind. Now, that, that's not the power of my preaching. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you need to take care of this. It's not just going to go away. You need to work at this. You need to walk in it. You need to rest in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but you need to do your part. We participate in our sanctification. We already talked about that. So we need to cleanse ourselves of these dishonorable things. And we have to chase. We have to chase maturity. We have to chase purity. We have to chase piety. You know, we've got to be careful with words sometimes because when I think pious, I think of guys in long, ornate robes and pointy hats. But what we're really talking about is holiness. We're talking about a holy way of living. We have to pursue that. So what are our weapons and how do we use them? I'm giving you a lot to think about. But let me show you something really simple here. I mean, if, if you want to mine all the beauty and truth that Paul has written into this passage, just do this. Look at, look at the chapter and look at what we're supposed to do and we're not, what we're not supposed to do. Here's what we're, we, we don't want to do in our lives. We, we, we don't want to quarrel. Verse 14. We don't want to be ashamed of the gospel of the word of God or salvation. Verse 15. We want to avoid irreverent babble. Verse 16. We want to flee from youthful passions, things that would dissuade us. Verse 22. We have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Verse 23. And just in case we didn't get that theme from Paul, he finishes verse 24 with, don't be quarrelsome. And that that goes for everybody. Don't quarrel with everybody. Don't quarrel with anybody. Don't just don't quarrel amongst yourself. Don't quarrel with those people out there. It's a bad witness. So those are the things we're not supposed to do. Here's what we are called to do. These are the weapons we've been given. Do your best to present yourself as one approved. Verse 15. Be sincere about what we're doing. Rightly handle the word of truth, verse 15. That means we need to know the word of truth. We can't take a snippet here and a snippet there and become bumper sticker theologians. We have to understand the full counsel of God. Depart from iniquity, verse 19. Walk away from it. Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, verse 21. And we have... Verse 22 tells us to pursue some godly attributes. There's a list of them here. We pursue righteousness. We pursue faith. We pursue love. We pursue peace. And in verse 24, it tells us what to be while we're pursuing anything. Be kind to everyone. Be able to teach. Be patiently enduring evil. And be correcting opponents with gentleness. These are the heavenly weapons of the church. And they are extremely powerful. Let me tell you how powerful they are. 
Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our welfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see, the world out there is, is dominated by strongholds. There are walls around the lost. And we got the hammer of God to knock down the walls and be the light that they need to be so that they can see the way. The heavenly weapons are divine and they are fine for destroying strongholds. So we are to guard the gospel. You know, some of you will be thinking about those statistics I mentioned earlier in the in this service. And I want, you to, I want you to look at them the way Jesus Christ would look at it. You look at that and go, wait, wait, wait a minute, 56%? I thought the majority of Christians in the United States were much higher than that. You know, we're, we're, we're just, and, and you know something, that study was done 10 years ago, and they think there might have been a 15 to 18% swing in the numbers. I thought there were more. And, and then you look at the evangelical church, 46%. That means 54%. More than half of the people who go, who attend an evangelical church, believe that there are other ways to get saved than Jesus Christ. And we could go, oh, that's terrible. It's a dark time. Yes, there are clouds on the horizon, but you know what? It's not a dark time. This is an opportunity. Jesus says, look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white until harvest. Let our passion be for knowing the Lord. Let our passion be for knowing his word. Let our passion be for knowing his, his people. And let us battle not over issues. Let us battle not with each other, not over who's right or who's wrong, but for the souls of those who we encounter. Fight for their souls. This is what the church was called to do in Timothy's day. And in 2,000 years, the church and its calling hasn't changed. Matter of fact, if you stop to think about it, it's gotten a lot better. Right now, any one of you can go home and get on your computer and reach thousands of people at the same time. The question is, what will you do with that privilege? What will you do with that opportunity? May we ever be the light of the world. Amen?